those of you that know me, you, you understand and you know that, that what tradespeople do is for me something that is uh, some combination of mysterious and brilliant. I mean, it just is a great mystery to me. I mean, how do these truck drivers back up tandem trucks? Jim and I used to have a little tent trailer, and most of the time we go camping, I just unhook it from the car and wheel it with my hand because I could never get it into the stinking place. I don't know. And, and carpenters, they start with nothing, and all of a sudden you can walk out on the deck. Like just hours later, an electrician, like my dad did, he tried so many times to help me out, but it was like, I've shown you this before, get out of the way. Hopeless. Mechanics, oh Lord Jesus, God bless them. And so it's this, it's this weird thing that, that some women and men can do in this, this whole trades thing. And, and we need to know how to fix stuff, right? I mean, things break down. Things need building. And when stuff breaks down around me, it's just a, just a puzzle to me. I know it's got to be fixed. And I'll, I'll try and diagnose the problem. And then I'll try and think of what a solution is. And, and more than... Fewer of the times, I'm absolutely wrong. Last week, I had another example. Um, had to uh, take my vehicle into to Doug Delaware. A lot of you know Doug and use him as a business. Great, a great guy. And because uh, what happened was this, Sheena said to me, hey, Alan, uh, I see in the garage floor after you left, there was a leak at the, you know, at the back of the, where the truck was. Some kind of a blue-green fluid deal kind of a thing, which should have been a clue to me, but of course, I knew that things aren't supposed to be leaking. Now, a couple of weeks before that, I'd taken my truck in to get one of the, an extended maintenance thing, because Doug said, oh, you know, you're over 200,000 kilometers, whatever it is, I've got to do this and this and this. Okay, Doug. I just do whatever Doug's telling me to do, because it's, it's a mystery to me. It's very important you have a good mechanic on these things. You know, Sarah was asking me just a couple of months ago, about, you know, do you think you and Mum will ever move down here? I said, Sarah? In Grand Prairie, I have the church, I have a doctor, and I have a mechanic. <laughs> you've got to be crazy to move away from a place if you've got a church and a doctor and a mechanic. You better just stay where you're at. I mean, so Doug said he needs this thing, so I take him in, and I know he had to do something in the back end of the truck there. Who knows what it was? And I think, oh, he messed up. So I phoned up Doug, said, hey, Doug, uh, actually, I texted him, I got a leak, can I bring my truck in, so on and so on. So Doug said, yeah, bring it in on Wednesday. And so I brought the truck in. And then that morning, after a couple of hours, he, he phones me, he says, Alan, I can't find any leak. Well, it's right there, Sheena told me. No, I can't find the leak. What is it? Well, describe it to me. I said, well, it's a leak. <laughs> and Sheena said, this is why tradespeople just hate to see me coming in, you know. <laughs> It doesn't work. I don't know, it doesn't work. So uh, it's a leak. So in the back end there, I can't find it. Describe it. So I'm trying to type text in what I'm describing. And then he goes to me and he says, I found a leak. Your radiator hose is leaking. I said, that's the wrong end of the vehicle, Doug. I mean, what kind of mechanics is this? And then it dawns on me. You know what happens if you reverse your truck into the garage instead of driving like you normally do? So there it was, had this problem once again, totally, you know, I thought I had the problem at the rear end there, and actually the problem was at the front end. Now today in the passage, God's going to talk to us about a problem that I suppose really all of us will face sooner or later. He's going to talk to us about conflict, 
about battles, about fights and quarrels and, and hurt feelings and, and all of the things that, that happen with this. And, and, and as I do so often, I wrongly diagnose so often the conflicts that I find myself in. And so God's going to talk to us about how do we recognize what the real issue is how do we battle our battles? How do we, how do we fight ourselves from, from causing relational problems that are irreparable and damaging people? And, and how, do we, how do we actually do this? And as I dug into the passage, I saw that really what God says is very often, for me at least, and I suspect for all of us, the problem that I think it is, isn't really the problem at all. And so, so often the solutions that I attempt to apply to this problem of conflict are the wrong solutions. And so the problem doesn't get fixed. So often, I'm looking at the wrong end of the truck. So let's take a look, first of all, at our battlefield. Just the first four verses of James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you have on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity? against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, 1 through 4. And so he begins where I begin, where I suspect we all begin, that we sense that there's some kind of a battle, some kind of a conflict with my neighbor. Now, what's really interesting about this is remember that James is writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit to Christians. He's writing into a church situation. He's writing to people who are brothers and sisters and they find themselves in these conflicts which he describes with such just incredible language, quarrels and fights and killing. I mean, there's some scholars that say, well, you know, this may have been the beginning, might be actually killing, but, but most say, no, no, this is, this is sort of the emotional heart killing that happens when we have fights with each other that are done the wrong way about the wrong things. You see, this really happens, doesn't it? We find ourselves so often in conflicts with people. It shouldn't happen. We wish it didn't happen, but it does happen. You and I will have conflicts at work. We'll have conflicts at home. We'll have conflicts with our friends. And we'll have sometimes gut-wrenching conflicts here in the church. Because we're human beings. And if we cared about each other, and if we care about things, sooner or later, conflicts are going to arise. If we never have a conflict, it's probably because we don't care. Because if we don't care, why do you have a conflict? Who cares? Just let them do whatever they want to do. What do I care? I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just do this. I'll do that. Won't be friends. And so if we care, we are going to have conflicts in our environment and our relationships wherever they are. The trick is to do conflict right. 
And to not allow those conflicts to come to the point where they become a fight, where they become some kind of a death, some sort of relational death, some sort of emotional damage and hurting and healing, and maybe even the killing and the shrinking back. It's how we do these conflicts. They're going to arise. But what happens when I feel a conflict coming between me and you? What do I do? It's really interesting. James doesn't even tell us what the problems were. He doesn't even care what they're fighting about. That's kind of irrelevant. He says, look, what's important is that we're going to fight about this, we're going to fight about that, we're going to call this, that, whatever. What matters is how is my heart and how do I do it in the midst of all of this? He says, because you see, the problem is much deeper than a relational problem that you and I might have. There's something deeper going on than just a disagreement on what we should eat or what the, well, whatever it might be. It's this much more subtle, deeper battle of our hearts. Stuff that's going on in our hearts. His, why is it that you have fights and quarrels and disagreements? Because the root is in my heart. I want something and you are stopping me from getting it. Heck, you might not even be the person that's stopping me get it. I might be frustrated with something else that's going on. You just might happen to be the person that's the closest to me that I feel like I can overpower or the relationship's strong enough that I can let loose or whatever the case may be. You might just get, be sort of on the periphery of the blast of me not getting what I want, of the battle that goes within. And I'm just in a bad mood and you just say, hi, Alan. And I say, what are you talking What's good about it? I mean, sometimes we just get hit by the shrapnel of other people's stuff that's going on in their hearts. And so what's critically important is that, we, is that we look at what's going on in our hearts because the stuff that happens in our hearts can be so deadly, so much more important than the external things that we have. You know, a generation or so ago, C.S. Lewis, he has this great quote. You probably, you may have run across it before because I think it's just so good in his book, Mere Christianity. This is what he wrote. The sins of the flesh are bad. Now, sins of the flesh, that's like, you know, lust and gluttony and sloth, laziness, or whatever stuff, you know, kind of those things. Sins of the flesh, okay? The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all the sins. They, they tend to be where we focus, but they, the, all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong. Prove yourself right. Of bossing. Of patronizing. And spoiling sports. Making fun of people in our hearts maybe. Backbiting. The pleasures of power. Of hatred. For there are two things competing inside me. Two things competing with the human self, which I must try to become. I must be a human being, created and sharing and showing the image of God. And here's the things that compete. There's the animal self. These are the sins of the flesh, the gluttony, the, the adultery, the, the power plays of war, whatever it is, fighting. The animal self. And then there's the diabolical self. Diablo is Satan, right? Spiritual. These spiritual battles that happen that maybe other people don't even see. The diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worse 
of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. You see what he's saying? He's saying that so often the things that are really going to kill you, the things that are really going to kill me, the things that are really going to kill our relationship with each other and with God is this kind of this spiritual stuff that happens in here, this, this superiority we might have or, or the selfishness we might have or, or some of these things. When we come into a battle, when we find ourselves in a conflict, when I find myself in a fight, the first thing I need to do is to stop and examine my heart. What is going on in my heart? In the midst of this conflict, do I have the heart of Christ? Or do I have the heart of the animal or the heart of the diabolical self? Where's my heart, Alan? Where's your heart? And how are you responding? Because so often that is going to be the the, uh, root of the issue rather than what I think that you've done to me or stopped me doing. Because you see, sometimes we have to have conflicts in a positive way, don't we? I mean, sometimes there are things that need to be addressed and we we have to address them. You know, I've I've been using the one-year Bible for my devotional reading for years and years and years. It's a good thing to do because it makes me read things I wouldn't normally read, like Leviticus. And here, a few days ago, a week or so ago, I'm reading along in in Leviticus, uh, chapter 19, verse 17, where most of you spend your devotional time. And it says this. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Isn't that interesting? You see, what he's saying is that if I come and I, and I, and I, I hurt you, you know, I, as usual, blunder through there and somehow I, I hurt you or whatever, like, you know, as I tend to do, hurt people, say things, do things, forget things, whatever it is. And here's the thing. When I do that, if you, if you don't tell me that I've done it, if, if I'm, you know, continually, you know, hurting you, putting you out, saying this, ignoring you, whatever the thing is, what God's saying is that, listen, if, if you don't tell me, if you don't confront me on that, if you just say, Alan, you know, when you do that, that really hurts, would you quit pointing me out in public? Then I'm going to keep on doing it. And what does Leviticus say? He says, you know what? You share the blame. If I'm hurting you and you don't tell me because I'm doing something that's it's just not right, and God says, listen, if you just harbor that in your heart and you become bitter and you don't confront that issue, you don't say, hey, Alan, this is what's going on and this is how I'm experiencing this, let's work this through, then you share the blame. It's quite a thing. And so what God says, listen, there, there are going to be times when you're going to have to confront, you're going to have to conflict. There's, there's going to be times to do that. Just look first at your heart, Alan. And make sure you're approaching this with the heart of Jesus and not the heart of the animal or the heart of the diabolical. But I'm still not done. Because when I look at my heart in the midst of this conflict and I find, ooh, that's kind of ugly looking in there. What's going on? That we've got to go one step further. The Holy Spirit says, listen, that the reason that your heart is wrong And the reason that some wrong stuff is spilling out off from your heart and over other people is that you have a problem with your friendship. You have become friends with the world, which makes you an enemy of God. 
Uh, you want to talk about a scary verse in the New Testament. I mean, who wants to be an enemy of God? Who wants to be that? And it's a bit scary too, because I mean, there's, kinds of, there's all kinds of things in the world that I enjoy, right? I enjoy laughter, I enjoy good food, I enjoy walking in nature, I enjoy, uh, you know, a bit of fun between people, all, all kinds of things. And it, it sounds at first like God's being a bit of a killjoy, you know, oh, you know, anything to do with the world, you better just be praying and reading your Bible and worship, that's it. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. Here's what we need to understand. The ancient world had a much different understanding of friendship than we tend to have today. We tend to think that, you know, if you're my friend, then you follow me on Facebook or Instagram or WeChat or some, some kind of a thing, you know, well, I've got this many, these are my friends. And what, what they understood as friendship was something that was much more significant, something that I think, man, we, we really need to recover. Because you see, friendship back in the time when James was writing this was something that is, was very deep. It, it, at its heart was a commitment to each other that we are going to stick with each other. We are actually going to share things. We're going to share spiritual things. There's going to be a physical unity. It was something about traveling with life together and having people around you that, that really knew who we were and walked with us and helped us be what we were going to be. You see, that's what friendship was. It was much deeper. It wasn't that you just kind of had people passing through your life and you see them for five years and then they move away and never see them again. No, this was something that was much more significant. And what James is saying is that, listen, what's going on in your heart, Alan, that you're having this conflict? Not, not every time, but when things go wrong, what's going on is that you have become a friend of the world. You have taken on the world's values. You begin to measure things as media tells us we should measure them. You begin to value the things that the things that the, the world says are more important than people, and the world says are more important than the relationship. You begin to take on that ethic and those goals in your life, and you have begun to respond to people in ways that those values and those examples treat people instead of the way and the example of Jesus Christ. You've become diabolical. You've become fleshly. And God says, when you function that way, when you take on the norms of society and treat people as society has us treat them, you are an adulterer. That's adultery. Because you see, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we enter into a covenant with him. And we say, not only, God, am I going to take your salvation, not only am I going to take your grace, not only that, but I'm going to take upon me your lordship. I'm going to covenant with you to begin to live my life as Jesus lives my life. And when I don't live my life as Jesus lives his life, I have broken covenant with God. I've broken the promise of unity that I made with him. And God says that is adultery. And that makes you my enemy. So how does God respond to that? Because I know I'm guilty at times. I know that. I know that sometimes I respond to things in my life that the world would say, this is what's important and this is how you respond. How, how does God respond to that when we do that? Well, God's response that noted first that we read is the response that nobody really wants. It's nobody's first choice. He says, Alan, you are an adulterer and you have made yourself my enemy. 
craziness is that what we do? How in the world is it possible that we, you know, we say yes to God and then before I know it, I'm back living in the way, slip back into the way of the world and the values of the world and the way of doing things that the world does them and, and biting over things and fighting and battling with people in ways that the world would have us do, getting my back up, being aggressive, trying to overpower, all of those things. What, what is this craziness that I fall into? Why do I do that? I make myself an enemy of God. But thank God, that's just what he says. It's the response, I don't want to be an enemy of God. I don't want to be a spiritual adulterer. I want to be a friend of God. I want to be his son. I want Christ to be my Lord. And thankfully, God's main response is to pour on more grace. Look at verse 5 and 6. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. You might have noticed that your translation says something slightly different in verse 5. It's a really difficult passage for, the, for them to translate and so on, but it all boils down to this. God sees us taking on these values of the world and, and, and that affects our heart and that affects our relationship with each other and with him. He sees this and so God says this. Listen, you need to understand something. You are the church. You are the bride of Christ. You are my creation. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, as the creator and the spouse, has a desire and a jealousy for you. That's if you with the word jealousy, you can put the word desire in there. God has the desire of us, of a creator that makes a precious creation, of a spouse who betrothes himself to us. He has that, and he doesn't want us wandering off, committing adultery, and fighting about things about the world in the worldly way. He loves us, and he doesn't want us destroying ourselves and our relationship with him or our relationship with each other, and he sees that we're in trouble, and he sees that we're beyond our own help, and so what does he do? He pours on, he drenches on, he lavishes on more grace, the love and the grace and the kindness and the good of God to transform our heart. It's just an amazing thing. Isn't that not just blow your mind? I mean, think about it. He's saying, Alan, you're in a fight with somebody. You and Sheena are having a fight. Well, Alan, you need to examine your heart. Oh, oh God, I got some black stuff going on in my heart here. Yeah, you've got some black stuff in your heart. You know why? It's because you're treating your wife as the world, as the TV or whatever says to treat your wife. You've made a friend with the, with the, with the world. And you're an adulterer, Alan, because of how you're treating your wife and speaking to her or whatever the case may be. And so I'm going to give you some more grace. Because you need it. We sing songs about that, don't we? I don't want to abuse your grace. But God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that really makes me want to change. This is what God does. He sees our wandering heart. 
and he pours on more grace so that our hearts can have the room to grow, so that our hearts, by God's grace, can be washed of the junk that's in there, so that by God's grace, we have the strength to go back and to fix those relationships that we've messed up because we got into this fight and we killed instead of just trying to work things out. He just pours on and lavishes more and more and more and more and more grace because that's the God that we serve. And when we became our enemy of God and we say, I'm not going to do that anymore, he just patiently waits by and then gives us grace when we turn our eyes towards him. Because he is a God of grace. So we started off with problems with other people and God moves us to examine our hearts. He says, Alan, you know, how's your heart? Is it like Christ? Oh, well, what you've done is you've abandoned your vows to God. You've climbed into bed with the world, but thankfully I'm just going to drench you with my grace. And then I need to respond to that. Then I need to live this out in fresh and new ways. Then I need to humbly submit to God. Pick it up in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. And there's a whole pile of definitions now of what it means to submit yourself to God. I mean, it's kind of a airy-fairy sounding kind of a deal. He says, okay, let me explain to you what submitting to God really means. Number one, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Because I know you've got this battle going on inside you, Alan. Grieve and mourn and wail. Ooh. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He'll pour on that grace. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment of it. And there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Man, what does it mean to submit to God? Well, it means, first of all, to resist the devil. To fight him. It's, it's, it's warfare language. Understand that there is an enemy who is out to destroy you, destroy your families, destroy your friendships, destroy this church, destroy your workplace, destroy your neighborhood, destroy this nation. There is an enemy hard at work and we are to fight him. Now the Bible warns us, don't take the devil too lightly. He is real. He is real. So don't take him too lightly. But understand that in God's grace, you have sufficient authority to resist the devil, to say no. The authority of the Lord Jesus is with us and we can fight him and resist him and have victory over top of him. But not only just to, to push away the devil when those thoughts and those attitudes are found in our heart, but he said, but instead, not only that, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's one of those more mind-blowing things. It blows our mind that when we become an enemy of God, he just said, okay, then I'm just going to give you some more grace. And the next thing he says is that, listen, if you will just draw near to me, then I promise you, I am the creator of the universe. I speak and mountains will shatter. I whisper and the courses of rivers will change. I blink and a king rises or falls. But if you will draw near to me, I, the living God, will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God? We know how, right? We immerse ourselves in scripture, in prayer, in worship, in service. 
in community and in the church, we draw near to God. And your Cyprian said, no man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. This idea of community, we draw near to God by participating with other believers and praying with each other and bearing one another's burdens. And then he says, to draw near to God, you have to wash your hands and purify your hearts. What he's saying is that you've got to watch out for that external behavior of the fights, the washing of the hands. But you also have to watch out for your heart, purify your heart. This command, wash your hands, purify your heart. You know what that is? It's Old Testament priestly language. And what he's saying is that, listen, what you need to do when you find yourself in this conflict, when you find yourself in a relationship, you need to ask yourself, am I behaving like a priest? What I'm about to say, a priest just means bridge. You know that, right? That's all it means. So here's the question I need to ask myself. When I'm in the midst of this conflict, is the word that I'm about to say, is the action that I'm about to undertake, is it something that's going to build a bridge between that person and God? Because that's my job. That's what it means to wash my hands and purify my heart. It's that as I'm in the midst of this conflict, everything that I do and say, it better be designed that that person is going to become closer to Jesus by the time we're done listening to what I've got to say than the other way around. To use the being of a priest. And then he says to mourn sin. Verse 9. What a depressing word. Give up your laughter. Start mourning. Don't be dancing. Throw tears. I mean, sign me up. (laughs) What he's talking about is to take our sin seriously. To take the damage we do to each other seriously. And when we find ourselves in these quarrels and fights and it feels like somebody's getting killed in their hearts, we don't just let that slide. When we walk away from some kind of a conflict and a situation and, and, and I'm thinking, boy, you know, I feel good about that. I really told that person. And that person doesn't feel good at all. God doesn't feel good at all either. Because that person is a child of God created in his image. And he's just warning, don't walk away thinking how happy you can be because you won that argument, you won that fight, you showed them, you told her, you did. No, you stop and you wail and you mourn because you have broken something. And I need to go back and be a bridge again. I need to go back and fix that up. And make sure that I haven't damaged the reputation of Jesus and that he had gone back and fixed a bridge between that person and me and that person and God. Which means that we have to humble ourselves to say I'm sorry, to say I did wrong, to say I need God's grace and to receive that grace and live that grace out in my relationship with other people. And then finally he says, and then you just, Alan, use your speech well. He says, don't don't slander another person. It just means that slander is any harmful speech. And he has this weird thing about the law, right? So what's he talking about? Judging the law and only God's the lawbreaker. Let me tell you what it is. Here's what he's saying, okay? The law boils down to, Scott can tell you, it's his favorite whole thing, you know. Love the Lord your God, the Lord your heart, the Lord your soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? He's always on about that. Loving people. It's that law. And he's saying that when we speak ill of people, 
When we do people does, even if they have first damaged me, the law says, God's law says, no, you will love that person. And when we don't love that person, when I respond in like kind to nastiness, when I'm nasty back, you know what I'm saying is I'm saying, God, your law is wrong. The right response to somebody treating me that way is to treat them the same way back. That's what's right. And I'm going to be the judge of that. And I'm judging you, God, and your law as being wrong, inconceived, and not practical. God's law is you will love one another, and you will bless those who curse you, and love those who hate you. And when we're in a conflict situation, and we've got the, the, the hatred and the cursing coming this way, I speak well. By God's grace, we speak well back. And we do what we can to build a bridge between that person's heart and God's heart. Because they've got stuff going on in their heart as well. As a matter of fact, I like what the Apostle Paul says. It's a, it's a verse I, I need to learn so well. He says this in Colossians. Let your conversation always be full of grace. This grace that God is going to pour more upon us when we're in the midst of these fights, that grace that he lavishes upon us, that grace that we say, you know, it's the only thing that really is going to make me change. Then let that grace that God has poured onto us come out of my mouth to the person with whom I'm in conflict. Their conversation will be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Salt is a purifier. Salt is a preserver. Salt preserves the relationship. Uh, if I'm in some this, this relationship and we're gonna, it's going to break down and there's going to be a barrier, it's a problem, then what I'm going to do is I need to say words that are salt. I need to say words that are going to preserve that relationship, that are going to make sure that it remains wholesome, that it burns out any of the rottenness that I might speak. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Everyone. Because conflicts are going to happen with people you like and people you don't like so much and people that matter to you now and people that maybe don't matter so much to you right now. Everyone. Let your conversation be full of grace seasoned with salt. So if I'm in an unhealthy conflict with you, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be done right. I thought I had a problem with my rear differential. I know that word. But no, the problem is with your radiator. And so often I might think that I've got a problem with you. And I'm going to fix that. I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to do whatever. And God says, no, no, Alan. The problem's at the other end of your life. Your problem is first with me because you're acting like the world and then that's changed your heart and then that's making that disagreement into something nasty and horrible and murderous 
and diabolical. And you better stop in the middle of it and forget about this for a while and work on this. Almighty God, we, we have conflicts. If we care about something, we will be in conflict. And, you know, it, it can be a healthy thing because we should care. We should care about our families. We should care about our church. We should care about our neighborhood. We should care about this nation. We should care about your creation. And, and that's good. We're going to have difference of opinions. And if we care enough, then we're going to have conflict. And we accept that, Lord. We realize that sometimes that needs to happen. As iron sharpens iron, we, there's sparks, there's heat, there's conflict. But we need to know how to do this. And so I pray for us. Maybe some of us are in a bit of a conflict right now. Well, it shows our hearts. Because so often what's going on, the reason I'm hurt, the reason I'm mad, the reason I'm upset is because of stuff that's going on inside my heart. Because things aren't going the way I want because I'm not getting what I want. Something's being taken from me that I don't want to give up. I'm being over, all kinds of stuff. To help us, Lord, to just step back and say, what's, what's going in my heart that I'm getting so worked up about this? And is it the horse of Christ And if it is the horse of Christ and my position is right, am I, am I explaining that? Am I portraying the horse of Christ in the midst of this conflict? Am I being a bridge? And maybe, maybe there's something that's not right in my heart. Maybe somehow I've become a friend of the world. I've taken on some value of the world that you say is not right. And sometimes those things sneak in and I don't even realize I've got them in me until you confront me with it. And, and sometimes, sometimes, Lord, I confess, I just embrace it because uh, it's going to work. It's going to happen. I can get my way. I can feel good. Lord, we need that grace we're so thankful that when we find ourselves in that spot, that we make ourselves your enemy, you just pour on more grace. You just say, come home. Come home and let me give you a bath in my grace. Just soak in that for a while. So that your heart can be changed. So that when you go back out there and you encounter that person again, what comes out of your mouth, what comes through your body posture, what comes through your eyes is my grace. So that that conflict can become a bridge. So that we can become priests building bridges between people and you and people and ourselves. We pray this to Christ. Amen.